I'm Aeson and welcome to a very special 9320 podcast. I am delighted to be joined by Mr. Michael Holstein and Mr. Gabriel Marcotti and we are here to talk about the documentary film that Michael's producing called Soccer in the City. Firstly, welcome Gab. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. Welcome, Michael. Hello, happy to be here. Welcome back, I should say, to both of you, because you've both been on the podcast before. Uh, Michael, how's production shaping up for the film? We are very close uh, to being finished with, with the main part of production and moving uh, rapidly into post-production. So I think maybe two more shooting days, a um, couple pickup shots here and there, but otherwise it's, it's been great and uh, we're in the home stretch. Excellent. Excellent. You spent a lot of time um, in New York with the New York City FC people, didn't you? Yeah, NYCFC has been great. Uh, we filmed uh, with everybody from the top down. So we, we filmed with Claudio Arena out at the training facility. Uh, we filmed with some of their uh, youth, like developmental players, a kid named Prince, who's about 15 years old and plays in a in a Bronx club that's affiliated with the team and uh, with Justin Hawk, who's had a couple first team call-ups, who's another uh, homegrown talent came out of Brooklyn. Um, so yeah, we've worked a lot with NYCFC, uh, went out to a game there last week and uh, they've been great. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, the way that I want to do this today, because we're so, we're getting closer and closer to the release of the film is just for maybe people who, didn't listen to the previous podcast that we did or are kind of new to this. Gab, I want to start with you. Um, where actually does the U.S. find itself today in terms of its youth soccer development programs? And I mean everything from the MLS clubs down to local clubs. Well, I think, look, my, uh, my old buddy, Roger Bennett, um, who some people may know from Men in Blazers, he always cracks the same joke that, you know, uh, America where, where, where soccer is a sport of the future and always will be. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, there is a trend. America obviously presents a whole number of challenges or the United States presents a whole number of challenges that, that perhaps don't exist uh, elsewhere or different elsewhere. And um, I think there is a certain frustration that, you know, MLS started in 1996 um, 23 years ago with the, with one of the express goals of, of elevating, um, us soccer. And, you know, you look at, depending what benchmark you use, I think, uh, in, in some cases it's, it's done, it's achieved that goal and, and achieved it very well. Uh, in other cases, such as us men's national team and, you know, and perhaps the, the, the pipeline the, the of, of talent production, it has a, it hasn't quite reached the goal that, that, that it set for itself. And, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with, with youth development. You know, the, the, there's a big issue. You talk to anybody who works in youth coaching in the U S and what they call pay for play is a big issue in, in Europe and in South America. Um, if you're a talented kid playing football, um, you join a local club and it's usually free because, it's in the club's interest to develop you so they can sell you on or whatnot. Um, and, uh, and you kind of go through the system that way in the U S if you're a very talented young player, uh, it's a lot harder to do a club that'll do that. There are clubs, there are youth clubs that'll do that, but you know, a lot of them don't, don't have, aren't necessarily part of the football pyramid. Um, they don't go and look to develop players to, to then sell them on. They don't necessarily scout as aggressively. And, a lot of them subsidize this by, by taking paying players, for example, which, which has a whole bunch of, of, of knock-on implications, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you, Gavin, and then, Michael, I, I kind of want you to chime in on this as well. Is there a connection between the lack of diversity? I, I wrote in the original question at the top of the game, but actually across the sport in the U.S., is there a connection between the lack of diversity and the struggles that the men's national team face or is that an unfair thing to to say um i think you know that question you could is is sort of part of the 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 it fits into a larger sort of nature of e-nurture 
um, argument, right? Uh, which, which always rages when it comes to youth development in, in any sport. Um, I think the, and, and certainly relative to the women's national team, um, the U.S. men's team is, is certainly far more diverse. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, but there's still, I think, very much a sense that certain parts of the country, certain demographics, uh, simply don't get stuck, don't get scouted, don't have access um, to football development in the U.S. And you know, a lot of times where there is diversity in in the national team, um, it's not necessarily socioeconomic uh, diversity. You may have some level of racial diversity. Uh, there might be some um, some level of kids who you know or, or players. Uh, perhaps who who were born abroad and, and came to the U.S. taking their own culture with them, mm. um, but I think, I think there is certainly a sense that you know there are large parts of the country, um, and, and this cuts across race lines um, that you know simply don't have access to the sport or don't have access to uh, to high quality development. And uh, uh, and and then as I said, this is, doesn't just concern people of color. It, it, I think you know concerns probably um lower income areas around the country Hmm. Uh, michael do you want to chime in like your own kind of research into the film and putting the film together what where do you see the line between a lack of diversity in in football in the states and and some of the struggles of the national teams and also do you agree with gab that actually when we're talking about diversity maybe it's important that we talk about socioeconomic diversity rather than racial diversity yeah i mean I, well, first i absolutely agree with that that diversity is not just about skin color you know uh, it's a, it's about access um and when when kids from low-income backgrounds don't have access to the sport you know of course you're you're cutting short the pipeline um i think that again i agree with gab that it seems to be improving but it's doing it slowly um and i don't know one of the good things one of the most interesting things we've learned in making this movie is is that teams mls teams are uh making an active effort to reach out into areas, underserved areas, um, whether that's inner cities or poor rural communities or whatever it is, uh, you know, they're looking for talent wherever they can find it. Um, we worked, we filmed with Philadelphia with the union and two of their first team players, Mark McKenzie and Austin trustee are kids from, you know, inner city or, you know, around inner city, Philadelphia, who've come straight through the pipeline there. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, you look at even the way the men's national team performed this summer and yeah, we're obviously we're not there yet. And, and if you look at the sort of traditional demographic makeup of most athletes, professional uh, athletes in America, it's not suburban white kids. Um, I think soccer here is, is shaking that label a little bit, but, um, and there's people working to help it, but it's still, you know, I'd love to see that the actual, statistics and numbers on it but it still feels a little out of proportion at times i i think if, if i can just 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 piggyback on top of that um you know one of the efforts and obviously mls teams are are incentivized to you know to, to find kids kids and give them opportunity but you know one of the one of the issues that you face is simply down to to footprint there are 24 mls teams in, in 22 cities the league wants to expand, I think, up to 30 teams. Um, but it's a really, really, really big country. And that's only going to cover a certain segment of the population. And, you know, for most young football-loving kids in America, um, you know, there, there's not going to be an MLS team that you can join nearby. And so you end up in this... Uh, you end up in a situation where effectively you, you sort of have a stark choice between um, either not very good coaching or a pay-for-play scenario. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that completely. And, you know, even the point of with expansion, you know, there's teams that are, there's MLS clubs that aren't drawing a number or aren't 
don't have a fan base that can support them as is. So, and I know I think this is probably on our agenda for later, but to expand without some sort of relegation and promotion model is going to probably long-term inhibit the ability of the league to grow sustainably. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and to support uh, the, the developmental pipeline. Let's talk it's about expensive. Let's talk oh, about now the, the kind of the idea of a lack of promotion and relegation. I've seen a lot of, I feel as though it's becoming more of a, um, a conversation amongst the, amongst the footballing fraternity in the States, this idea that um, maybe they need promotion and relegation. So it would, is it, I wrote again, I wrote in the agenda, is that the root of why the game can feel like it's stagnating in the States? So Michael, you chime in first and then we'll throw it over to Gab. Do you think that's a fair thing to say that the game is stagnating and that's the cause of it? Um, I, I, I think promotion relegation is, is, is an age old sticking point and you know, you're going to find a range of opinions on that. Um, certainly, Many of many think within MLS and possibly the U.S. Soccer Federation feel very strongly that the professional game simply wouldn't be viable in the U.S. if promotion relegation existed. Um, I think promotion relegation would present challenges, but one of the obvious benefits that promotion relegation would do is it would incentivize um, it would incentivize teams. To, to invest locally, to, to strengthen. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't get this feeling late in the season where, you know, a team is out of the playoffs or, or has nothing left to play for and they know they're not going to go down. And, you know, that can certainly create a sense of frustration. And then maybe a sense of missed opportunity too. You know, you look at um, to, you know, and this is what always strikes me about MLS is the, is, is the absolute sort of variety um, of experiences, right? You, we, we see Atlanta and in Portland uh, at one end, and and then you see, you know, what should be legacy franchises like Colorado and, and, and New England that that have been there for for twenty plus years, and you know their fan base um, and, and their average attendance really isn't much different to what it was in the late nineties. Uh, in some cases, it's even lower, and. You know, you wonder, you wonder why that is. You wonder if, you know, is it the economic model that ultimately maybe somehow encourages you to to just kind of sit on it, you know, without perhaps going further into the community and, and, and without really competing for young talent and trying to develop young talent. Um, you know, it's <laughs> this is part of the debate. The flip side, obviously, is promotion relegation brings with it a level of of economic uncertainty and, and obviously the other American sports don't have promotion relegation. But of course, what the other American sports have is they have big time college sports. Mm. And I think that certainly goes into the equation because uh, again, you don't have, um, you don't have pro rel, but you have universities who are among the best in the world at developing young talent, but even high schools, um, certainly in the case of, of basketball and football, who will scour the country and compete aggressively to develop and attract young talent to get them into their system and, and to really serve as, as kind of a, a finishing school to produce top professionals. Now, that doesn't happen in the U.S. because you know college soccer isn't as big because there's maybe it's not the ideal place to go and, and develop talent. And obviously with promotion relegation with a more traditional pyramid structure there's there's reason to believe that you know the, the economic forces would lead to better outcomes mm. do you think that um do you think it's solely a, a kind of an economic decision the 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 idea that there is no promotion and relegation and what i mean by that is it is it an mls at the very top decision or do the individual franchises have so much power that they collectively go we don't want to do this because we're going to end up missing out like i i think you know and you see this all the time right uh when, when comparing u.s sports and in in, in, in european sports or, or really everywhere else in the world 
the strength of European sports is that the leagues um, are made up of owners who see themselves as business partners. And the first question that the answer is, what is best for our league? Mm. And viewed strictly through that lens, what's best for your league is not to drop out and not be part of the league, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very, very much ingrained. You know, these people put in money and they view it as risk reward. And if you tell them that the risk is being relegated and you know not being invited back into the league next year, that that changes the whole dynamic. Now, obviously, it's written right there in in, in the FIFA statutes. Um, for most of the world, when it comes to football, um, it's a different story. You know, you promotion and relegation is part of it. Um, but it, promotion relegation has other effects too. It tends to, it tends to stratify league, you know, in, in MLS, you know, you have, as in other American leagues, you have salary caps and, you know, you have the draft, which is admittedly becoming less important in the past. Um, everything is geared towards achieving parity. Mm. And those U S sports that have been most successful, obviously I think of the NFL here, um, are very big on parity as a driver of, of fan interest. And so inevitably, that is a lens through which a lot of these owners who also happen to end to, to, to own MLS clubs, or a number of them do, sorry, uh, NFL teams, um, that's the lens through which they view it. You know, they, they own a football club and they are shareholders in MLS. They're not necessarily shareholders in the U.S. Soccer Federation or indeed the future of, of U.S. soccer development. So they see things differently. Mm. Michael, um, in, in kind of putting the documentary together, uh, how, how much conversation was there around promotion and relegation as a driver of youth development? Uh, it, not a lot. Um, I think that Gab's exactly right uh, on every level. I mean, I think there are cities where MLS is thriving. You look at Atlanta – and it's not necessarily thriving. They are a good club, I mean, maybe the best club in the East, but it's thriving because of a cultural shift towards soccer, not necessarily because of the love of the sport. Um, so I don't know that the drivers are always competition. I think if there was a promotion relegation system, sure, it's going to incentivize teams to to spend more, to spend more wisely, to develop homegrown talent. But um Maybe it's a little bit chicken or the egg, but you know there's not the huge TV contract for MLS like there is with Premier League. So you know you get a team that moves up from the Championship to Premier League, and and the amount of revenue they're going to get with that move up is is astronomical. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that in America with the TV dollars in professional soccer that will change as drastically. And I think maybe the other. Uh, Another hurdle or sticking point with going to a promotion relegation system is you know, soccer sort of always feels like second tier sport in America. Like I've said, it's always been you know the sport of the future. Maybe it always will be. But one of the reasons for that, I think, amongst many reasons, is sort of the parochial nature, maybe a little xenophobia that soccer feels so foreign it's so non-american we already have to explain it to people like wait you know that the clock keeps running and you can't sub and there's no tv timeouts and now we have to explain why your team is one year playing and the next year you can't find them anywhere uh so i think there's a little fear factor with that too that you know no other american sport does it we want to be like all the other ones you know why are we gonna make ourselves different uh on a deeper level Hmm. so you know, on a on a very superficial level, then how what is stopping the the kind of the development of of a more competitive top tier of players? Is it literally? Cause I guess what I'm trying what I'm what I'm driving at here is on the one hand there is there are some benefits to to there not being promotion and relegation, and on the other hand, you're saying well actually promotion and relegation isn't really connected to uh, youth development, but at the same time, if you look at the top tier of MLS players, they're not good enough. Certainly not for the national team. So, what are some of the of the solutions in terms of improving that top tier of players? 
Okay. Well, I, are we trying to improve the top tier players of MLS or, or trying to improve the national team? Uh, and I think there's probably always a push pull with that. So you look at, you know, for example, we we filmed with Claudio Reyna, uh, and his son is you know 16, 17 years old, one of the you know kind of the elite U18s in America, and they Claudio and his family made the decision that rather than put him through. The NYCFC Academy that he should go over to Europe. He's, you know, he's a Dortmund player now. So the best teams in the world are still overseas. The best training programs are, uh, you know, what's going to make that change? I'm not sure, but uh, until it does, you know, whether it's a stroke of luck that we develop a homegrown star, an American Messi, or you get a Christian Pulisic to stay here and play for Philadelphia or something like that. Um, it, it feels like there's going to have to be something, an epiphanous moment to really shake things up. Mm. Gab, would you go along with that? Do you think that America needs a bona fide world star to begin to maybe keep players in the MLS or just to try and find ways to improve the top tier or inspire clubs or inspire, I don't know, like I'm, I'm looking for solutions here. I mean, I think um, obviously a top star would help. And one conclusion I've come to is, you know, I mentioned nature be nurture before. I am far more on the nature end of the scale uh, than the nurture, which doesn't mean that superstars are born randomly. Um, but I think it does mean that, you know, you can nurture 100 top athletes all you like if you don't have the freak of nature who randomly is in that 100, you know, he's not going to become um, an elite player mm. at the very top. Um, you people always go on about, you know, if you think of like the most vaunted, you know, youth academies, uh, you know, people often, people historically, for example, bring up Barcelona, but hey, look, you know, who's the last regular starter that Barcelona produced that actually plays for them? Um, Maybe Jordi Alba or Busquets are both in their thirties, you know. Or maybe this new wonder kid Ansu Fati is going to change all that. Um, but and he was only sixteen, so you know, and that's at Barcelona, right? That's at the at the, at the very, very highest um, at the very highest level. So I, I don't think it's something that you can plan on. Just let's sit around and wait for a superstar. Although weirdly, I think a superstar is probably overdue to come out of the U.S. Just yeah. in terms of of, of randomness, um, you know, I, I always ask people to, to mention, you know, who their top three U.S. players ever, excluding goalkeepers, are, and you know, you come up with, you know, whether it's Dempsey or, or Landon Donovan or or Tab Ramos, if you're a bit older school, you know, you don't necessarily hit the heights. Um, so I, I think one of the big differences, and and this is again, it's a problem of. It's a problem of geography, right? Um, in Uruguay, which is a tiny country, they produce tremendous footballers. And part of it is um, the, these very gifted kids play a lot of football. They get a lot of very, very good coaching. So you have the know-how. And, and that's going to take time, I think, in the U.S., a long time. Um, but most of all, they play against each other at a very high level. Mm. Um, in the U.S., that's really, really difficult to do. Because it's a very, very big country, and you know you can't have twelve-year-old kids flying around the country. You know, uh, even you mentioned Claudio Reyna there. Well, not everybody's going to have a dad with the knowledge and the means <laughs> totally. and the connectedness to say, "Yeah, I'm comfortable sending you halfway around the world." Um, so I think I think that is a big challenge, and it's one to do with geography. And look. The U.S. is unlike many other countries, but it's not unlike every other country in the world. And I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, maybe one lens of comparison could be Brazil, where obviously Brazil is what we think of when we think of the beautiful game in football, and they have a tremendous legacy and whatever else. But if you look where Brazilian pros come from, and which areas of Brazil are real hotbeds of talent, um, I think you'll find that it's only certain areas of the country. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously it's Sao Paulo. 
It's the area around Belo Horizonte. It's, um, it's, it's, it's Rio to some degree. There are large areas of the country, populated areas of the country, where you know you don't don't produce as many footballers, and it's not because those guys are are bad or don't like football. It's because you don't have the clubs and the infrastructure, and because the distances are so great that a lot of times, you know, teams don't get to have or even gifted players don't get to face top competition or get top coaching. Um, the way that happens, the way that happens in, in smaller countries around the globe, I really believe that that is a major hurdle. Mm. And and that's something that I think the USSF, if they're not thinking about it, should be thinking about in terms of, of turning things around. Do you think that you mentioned something earlier? I just want, I just want to touch upon it very quickly. You you said that you know the US is long overdue a superstar. Um, you also said that you believe a little bit more in nature than you do in nurture when it comes to to the top talents. But isn't there a risk of so I guess that my question to, to that or the, the point I wanted to put across was this idea that, well, look, you might be a very gifted football player at, at 11, 12, 13 years old in the States, but you're probably still going to end up playing in the NFL or the NBA if that if if you're kind of you get to high school age and there's two sports and you're good at both of them. One of them's football. The other one is basketball or it's it's or it's the NFL. It's American football. You're going to end up playing the other sport, right? Well, that's an old trope, right? Where we're, 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 it's something we've heard for years that, like, oh well, the reason the U.S. doesn't win the World Cup is because our best athletes play in the NFL and and then and, and then play basketball or whatever. And there's obviously a big pro, there's a, obviously a big incentive to do that because you know if I'm a great basketball player, or a great football player, um, I can get a full ride in college which I suppose you can potentially do playing soccer as well. But if you do that, is that necessarily going to be what's best for your soccer education? Maybe not. And, and, and so things kind of break down there. I, I think the impact of that, frankly, is a little bit overstated. Um, I, you know, I think there are freakish athletes who, you know, maybe in other parts of the world play soccer, um, but you know, look, take Lionel Messi. If Lionel Messi had been born into a world where soccer didn't exist, would he be a professional athlete right now? You know, we can always we can all picture Cristiano Ronaldo as as a wide receiver or something, or maybe <laughs> would have bulked up and become a tight end. I don't know. Um, but I mean, most elite footballers are under six foot. Um, so I don't generally believe that those guys would have gone on to, to, to go and play, play other sports. You know, I know obviously baseball players come in all sizes, but again, with baseball, there's so much technique involved, you know, probably a lot more than, um, so the technique matters more than athleticism. So, you know, that's kind of a, a, a different kettle of fish. So I don't necessarily you know, buy into that argument that all these guys who become, you know, stars in the NBA or NFL, oh, well, if they'd only played soccer, they could have been that good. There, there's so much technique involved in soccer, so much know-how, so much understanding of the game that, you know, you can't, you can't be a freakish athlete and, and just learn it from scratch. It doesn't work that way. Whereas, you know, to bring up the NFL, my, the team I follow, the Philadelphia Eagles, they have this guy named Jordan Maialata who, played Aussie rules who's like you know six foot eight and 300 pounds and super quick and super coordinated and they brought him in and they've been training him for two years to see if he can be an offensive lineman maybe he can maybe he can't but that's pretty much unthinkable in in in, in soccer it just it just can't happen yeah no no very 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 fair points um okay Michael Let's talk a little bit about the film. Um, so firstly, tell me the connection between the SCORES organization, uh, which you are part of, and the film itself. Yeah, so uh, America SCORES is a national network of 12 in 12 cities, uh, started in D.C., which is the biggest uh, group still that provides free soccer for underserved kids and almost exclusively in inner cities uh dc serves about three thousand, um and uh it provides soccer twice a year uh 
spoken word poetry competitions uh, during one quarter of the year and service learning, community service during the other. But uh, you know, soccer is at the core of it. And it's sort of the, the hook is the kids come for the soccer and stay for the service and the poetry. Um, and it serves the core group is is basically grade school up through middle school, but through some affiliate organizations, um, Open Goal Project and others. It provides opportunities now to uh, either get scholarships or get kids into programs who can't afford the pay to play, um, who have sort of prodigious or potentially prodigious talent and uh, should get the opportunity to play at a higher level, whether that means a college scholarship or getting into uh, an MLS club's academy. Um, it, it provides opportunities for that. Um, we're doing so, Scores is one of the several organizations you know everything from mls teams to well you can speak to your work in paris on the film but uh you know one of several groups or organizations that are are really reaching out into the community both to make soccer more accessible for kids in the community and you know to some extent hopefully to sort of mine that hidden talent yeah um gab what do you think is more important? Like, I've been having this conversation with Michael a lot as we put this film together, and it's it's the idea of, like, so what level of coaching do you need? Like, if you talk about youth development in inner cities or finding a way to take the sport to inner cities where maybe it's not well represented right now, do you think that the biggest challenge is simply access, or do you think that access alone isn't enough you actually need so what's the line between an organization like scores can it actually help to develop football in the states or do you need like a higher level of coaching or a higher level of you know the idea of going in and building football pitches in the mm. inner city and the, all that kind of stuff where's the line with that so i think Access is is critical. It's hugely important, um, but it's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, I think the other level that you need is, you know, you need a pyramid. You need a system around it. Uh, you know, Michael spoke there about how you know scores can open up opportunities with with the next level up of coaching. You know, in terms of of, of quality coaching, right? Because football still there's still a pedagogical element you know it's still something that, that that you can learn that's why we benefit uh from coaching so you need a system where the next level up you know once you've provided the access once you have the rec leagues and you know and the dads who help out and you know sort of part-time coaches who come in and, and, and do the best they can that creates a platform where people with potential can can be spotted by people who then are invested in the game and, and then have invested in the game that can get them access to better quality coaching and better quality competition, mm. right? which is ultimately the reason, you know, Reina's kid went to Dortmund. Um, now, assuming you're not Reina's, you're not Reina Jr., um, you know, you need to find, you need to, you need to get onto that, onto that, 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 that treadmill. You need to enter that system. So the access and the pitches are critical um, on their own, they're not necessarily going to help if there's no scouts watching, if there isn't another level, another way for them to just sort of conveniently and efficiently be selected for the next level where they can get better coaching and face better competition because, because ultimately that's, that's how you improve. Um, I'll give you a quick example in that sense. I, I had a friend who's, whose son is a phenomenal, very, very gifted player. Um, in in Boise, Idaho, uh, where you know he might have might be the best player in his age group in all of Idaho, um, or certainly is in Boise, but there's nobody for him to play against. He's not going to play against you know. So he has to go to these you know soccer camps and pay for play and stuff like that. There was talk of him moving. He's not going to move because you know it's a it's a family that's rooted in the community and there's a job or whatever. And, you know, the slowly coming around to the idea that, yeah, he might be able to play in college, but, you know, there's no real pathway for him professionally. 
mm-hmm. um, precisely because he's not going to be able to make those the, the, those big improvements, you know, without moving to to a coast or to Europe or or whatever. It's just not going to happen for him. Mm. It does make sense. It makes sense. Um, Michael, we're well, well, well into production now. Um, give me a couple. I mean, I'm interested in a conversation about. It's called Soccer in the City, and really, we're making a film about bringing football to to the inner city. Um, so, I want you to start by answering this question, and I want Gab to chime in on it as well. But, Michael, you go first. Does does football or soccer have an image problem in within inner city America? Um, and if has there been any shift in the last ten years? Has the image of the sport changed in the last ten years? Yes, uh, I think it's definitely changed. It's changing. Uh, it needs to change more, but for sure. So you look at, for example, Atlanta, where you know the hip hop community embrace embrace the sport, and that helped it take off. Or you look at uh, you know, one of the cool stories we found in making the movie. We were filming in Philadelphia, uh, mostly to talk with Austin. Uh, trustee Mark McKinsey, you know, two homegrown players, both African American, um, and just great stories. But in the in the process of speaking with them, we learned that the Philadelphia Union, which plays in Chester, Pennsylvania, which you know is not technically the inner city, but it's about as uh, beaten down a, an industrial town right outside of the city as you can find, and really just economically devastated on a lot of levels. Uh, Thirty years ago, Chester High School had to cut budgets and they eliminated their soccer program. Um, next year it's coming back thanks to the union. So they're building, rebuilding the pitch and supplying coaches and uniforms and everything. So, you know, there's, there's efforts, I think, to revitalize it mm. in the city. Um, you know, on, on a fan level um, and an interest level, you look at how the premier league brings, you know, does the premier league live events Um in cities and and that's obviously a different demographic you know you're not getting young players but you're getting moneyed fans who can help um raise the profile of the sport um so yes it is absolutely changing um and i think it's yeah it's changing on on a couple different levels i mean i think there is an effort to make soccer cool and make kids want to play soccer um some of that maybe a small percentage and maybe this will grow over time is probably related to the concerns parents and doctors and people have about the impact of football of american football mm. um you know cte and and just the undeniable statistics that football is is long-term harmful to you um so i think there's things like that that are helping it i think you know making it cool the premier league coming here you walk around the streets of brooklyn or portland and everybody's wearing soccer jerseys um and and then you have young talent that's sort of starting to pay it forward. So, you know, with the union developing Mark and Austin, two, you know, black kids from the city, uh, one played basketball for the most part growing up, one played baseball, but they both shifted to soccer. You know, you can show case studies of people who made it and send them out to the community to sort of feed that next level. Um, and then, you know, at the super grassroots level, you look at, something like DC scores where there's 3000 kids who play and you see kids, every part of the city, you know, wearing their shirts and it's almost like this, this club. Um, so I think just from the micro level to the big level, yes, is changing. It's getting better. Um, and that's probably maybe the biggest takeaway I had in making this movie. Uh, you know, we started it. It's on talking about like, you know, the subtitle of the movie should be like, why is soccer so white? Um, or why is America so bad at soccer and is it because it's so white and obviously we talked about that and there's still a lot of that there but it was definitely as a fan of the sport somebody's wanted America to succeed for ever since that 94 team uh, there's encouraging signs of life okay Gap do you want to chime in do you think the image is changing and also like do you think that the kind of the internationalism of guys like Neymar and messy and just the kind of internationalism of of 
the world of sport and the kind of, you know, the mass marketing at Nike and Adidas where you have campaigns with LeBron and Neymar and these guys together. Is that kind of recognition good for the sport in the States? Um, I, I, well, I think, look, it, it certainly is when, when people familiarize themselves with, with superstars. I, I'd, be, I'd be a little bit hesitant in terms of that's a, that's a certain type of exposure to football or exposure to a certain type of football. If you want to flip it around the other way, you know, in terms of, I, of, 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 of the super brands, um, I, I had this conversation uh, recently at the, uh, the UEFA champions league draw where, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the all the executives from all the and owners from top clubs all get together. And one of them said to me, you know, in European football, there's, used to be professional clubs and amateur clubs. Now it's, you know, amateur clubs, professional clubs, other professional clubs who hope to ascend to the top level. And then there's eight or 10 entertainment brands at the very top. Mm. Um, you know, and when you talk about, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Juventus, you know, these are almost like lifestyle brands and, 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 and the, and their top players as well. Um, you know, again, whether it's Cristiano or, or, or Neymar, you know, there's going to be a familiarity with them, but it is through that lens. And I wonder to what degree it is actually about the sport or whether it is simply, you know, through the lens of, of a video game or, or, or through the lens of, of, of social or, or the look or, or who's friends with, with, with LeBron and then who's not, um, and I'm not saying it, it's in a it's in a it, it, it's a bad thing. I mean, the way people people consume the sport necessarily evolves. I'm just wondering, is that enough to, or 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 what part does it actually realistically play in in people wanting to play the sport? Mm. Um, and, and I'm not sure about that. Okay, so you don't think there's an a you you don't think there's the same aspirational effect that seeing you know. Odell Beckham Jr. or seeing LeBron playing their sports, you you don't think that foreign superstars marketed in the U.S. can have the same aspirational effect on, for example, African American kids, an African American kid in Brooklyn who's fourteen. Um, I kind of feel like it can work if that person already plays the sport, gotcha. or that person has access to the sport. Um, you know. I, I was always kind of skeptical about this in the sense, you know, people have talked about, oh, look at, you know, Shaquille O'Neal popularizing basketball or, or you mentioned Odell Beckham Jr. there. Um, I love American football, but, you know, I'm not, actually I am six foot four, but I have a slightly different build than Odell Beckham Jr. And I certainly don't have his vertical or his athletic ability. So I don't necessarily aspire to be him. And I, you know, I don't aspire to be Shaquille O'Neal because I'm not seven feet tall. You know, um, I, I think there, there, there's a certain, there's a certain distance there. If you haven't already been introduced to the sport, I think it, it can certainly, it can certainly help a lot. Um, whether it's, but, but I think it, it's more of a driver for people who already have exposure, yeah. in my opinion, you know, and who have the opportunity. Um, I guess to put it differently, you know, you, you mentioned the 14 year old African American kid in, in Brooklyn. Um, you know, if he sees Neymar or just to pop up an Italian, if he sees Federico Chiesa on television, he'd be like, Whoa, that's really cool. I want to do that. But if he doesn't have a pitch and access to pick up games to do that, is he going to go, is he going to go and, and start kicking the ball around on the street with his friends? I'm not so sure. I don't think we're at that level. We don't have that. Um, that, that I don't think quite has that transformational power in the U S the way it might in other parts of the world. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. I agree with, with the access. It's, it's fundamental. Uh, and you know, and another work with NYCFC they're building 50 mini pitches across the all the boroughs of New York you know for that very reason so that if there's a kid who wants to play 
it's not going to be a problem that he can't find a place to go kick a ball. So, uh, you know, the access part is, let's say it's the easiest part, but at least if we make it available and we create opportunities, you know, there's a basketball court everywhere. uh, But when we have soccer pitches everywhere, it's easier to maintain. It doesn't require special equipment. It doesn't require special size. Just making the game available, uh, it's got to have a knock-on effect to you know to kids wanting to play to making it cool. I mean, it, it's a it's a long life cycle to do it. Um, but it, yeah, I think the easiest way to do it is just make it available. Let kids have a place to play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I want to wrap this up by asking you both one question each. Uh, Gab, I'm going to start with you. Um, why is this a good time? If indeed it is a good time to make a documentary like this? I think it's the right time because I think you do have an educated um, audience that that is starting to ask some of the right questions um, about, about soccer in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> one thing I've learned is that when you talk about audiences in any sport, particularly in soccer, particularly in the U.S., you know, there, there's a range. There are people who are super involved and populate social media with their thoughts on promotion relegation or, you know, um, the, who should, how should the clashes back four line up? Um, and then you have more casual people. Um, and then you have, who might tune into an MLS game or a U.S. national team game occasionally. And then you have another bigger cohort you know, maybe tuned into the Women's World Cup this summer and they come at this fresh. And I, but I think what the question that a lot of people are, are going to ask is why can't we be good at this sport, you know, or, or as good as, as we are in other sports, you know, what's, what's missing. And, you know, and over the years, I think there's been a lot of red herrings. There's, but, but I think we've come to the real, realization that having a professional league alone is not going to cut it you know that 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 certainly not in the shorter term simply the fact that mls exists and and is growing in terms of uh in terms of franchises might be good for mls and good for 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 soccer fans that's not going to turn the u.s national team into a power overnight it's not going to change change football culture it's not necessarily going to mainstream um the sport you know outside of world cups I, we're, we're talking baby steps here. I think that there is a desire for for a quantum leap. Um, and, you know, again, there's theories, the next big, what if they're all just takes one big superstar, the tipping point, Polisic, you know, the, the MLS academies, all these things are, I think, are part, promotion, relegation, all these things are part of a larger discourse. And I think that there's enough people right now who are asking questions, who are going beyond the obvious and saying, yeah, we have our league. It's been around for 20 plus years. It's not going away. Depending which metrics you believe, it's growing. Maybe not to the the hype levels that some would have us believe. But what can we do better? How can we go further? And I don't think that you know the country was necessarily ready for these conversations at these levels, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Okay. Okay. Michael, last question for you. Um, what do you hope people take away from the film and who is the film actually for? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I hope people take away is exactly what Gab just said, is that you know, soccer can grow and there's nothing but upside to it growing and whatever, whatever that means, whether that means we have another viable professional sports league here or we have a men's national team that can compete on the world stage. You know, I mean, look, it's it's the right time for it. The women just won the World Cup, so there's been great attention on that. We, the men, you know, the United States hosts the Men's World Cup in seven years. MLS is probably growing. Uh, so it's the right time to, to be in front of people with that. And football's probably taking a little dip. Um, uh, so I guess what I hope people take away most of all is that, you know, soccer can succeed in America. It's starting to. There's tremendous benefit to making it available to kids i mean through scores you see just case studies of kids who you know through playing were the first kid to go to college in their family not even necessarily in a soccer scholarship but by getting into this structured organization and learning 
the game and having teammates in a support system, maybe they got an academic scholarship because of that. Um, you know, there's clubs like MICFC, like Philly, like DC United that are doing things to reach out into the community and make it accessible for more people. Um, so I, I guess the hope the takeaway is that this is a worthy pursuit, no matter what the end result is, whether that means we develop world-class players or the MLS becomes, you know, truly the, the, on the same level as the NBA or NFL or major league baseball, uh, or whether that means, uh, you know, we eventually win a world cup. There's no negative to it. it it's all good. Um, it's great for kids. It's great for cities. Um, I think it's the right time for a lot of the reasons we discussed. So I hope that is the takeaway and that people engage with some of the amazing characters and, and people we worked with, whether mm. it's well-known players like Brianna Scurry or Claudio Reyna or, you know, a coach through the scores organization or a similar organization, um, Bronx United, South Bronx United, which is you know, kind of an affiliate club of NYCFC. You know, people who watch the film will meet amazing people who are giving their time and money and effort to to nurture this. Um, so from that, I guess, you know, who I hope our audience is and everybody, you know, if you're interested in soccer, if you're interested in sports, if you're interested in culture in America or youth development, um, I think we've got something for everybody here. There's amazing character studies and great stories and, and some of the work you did in Paris filming. You know, it's not just an American story, but by filming there and by introducing how it's working there is a really cool compare and contrast, you know, to what's going on here versus what's going on in the rest of the world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think our audience is anybody who's interested in, in any of those things or music. We got a great soundtrack. So, um, but most of all, uh, yeah, I mean, most of all, you know, if, if you're interested in sport and in competition and in the power of what sport can do for a community, for a kid, for any, you know, economically, um, we're introducing great people doing interesting work in that world. Absolutely. And I think the, the, the only thing I'd want to say is also like for me, as much as it feels at times like an academic conversation, it's not really an academic film. Like it, it definitely is. It, the idea is a lit for it to be a little bit aspirational to talk about the things that can be done and to maybe inspire the kids who watch it, who are interested in, soccer or like Gab says, who maybe, you know, are interested in the internationalism of Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern Munich as a lifestyle who kind of watch the film and then go, maybe I want to kick a ball as well. Um, so I hope that we can, we can deliver a little bit of that as well. Right. Gentlemen, um, Mr. Marcotti, first and foremost, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Look forward to, uh, to get rolling with this. Absolutely. Michael, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gab. Um, excited to be working with both of you on it. It's great. Thank you. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was a little different from the normal Man City-centric podcast that we do. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you have any questions or comments about the film, you can DM us at uh, the podcast's Twitter account, and we will pass those on to Michael. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues.